The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, January 21st, 2021. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And it's one of my favorite January 21st traditions. Still hungover by a new president, the nation rubs its eyes and says, wait, the last guy, pardon two? So the answer in the case of the last guy, Donald J. Trump, is 143 people pardoned or had their sentences commuted. A couple Republican congressmen, few actually, convicted of bribery or lying to investigators, and the former Democratic mayor of Detroit convicted of racketeering, and a whole lot more. We'll get into some of them in the spiel. Trump pardoned a guy named James Johnson, who in 2008 killed some ducks in an unsporting manner. I can't figure out what it's all about. I mean, I understand the crime. He had seed put down. The ducks went to eat the seed. Boom. Hires a couple guys to blast them. Can't do that. Like I said, unsporting, illegal. He was fined and served a year's probation. And now he's getting a pardon. All right. Let's look into that one. But the one I was looking into is pretty large name pardon. Well, large name, but also a little name because of Lil Wayne. Dwayne Carter, the rapper known as Lil Wayne, a month ago pleaded guilty to illegally possessing a gold-plated pistol aboard a private jet in Miami. He did face several years in prison. So his lawyer, Bradford Cohen, appealed to Trump. And Cohen explained that President Trump, quotes, got a style that's similar in terms of the way that he carries himself. And a lot of rappers and people in the industry relate to that. Okay. The official citation of why Lil Wayne was pardoned listed esteemed members of the community who supported his pardon. Among them, Lamar Jackson, Baltimore Ravens QB. Threw a bad pick six against the Bills in the AFC Divisional Games last week. Seems like a silly disqualification, but what are his actual qualifications? I guess it's better than another person who, in the official pardon, attested to Lil Wayne's character, Bernie Carrick who, when we last saw him, was standing behind Rudy Giuliani at Four Seasons Landscaping. Before that, we saw him in federal prison for four years. Before that, he was the New York City police commissioner. Don't worry, Carrick was pardoned by Trump himself last year. Also listed as a character witness attesting to Lil Wayne's probity, Gucci Mane. On behalf of Lil Wayne, Gucci Mane. Mr. Mane, haven't you been arrested half dozen times? Actually, probably more. Got your drugs charges, your battery charges, and your gun charges for Gucci Mane. But none of these guys are interesting. I mean, they're insane. But are they interesting? What's interesting is who isn't listed as a Lil Wayne character witness. According to a quote in the New York Times, lawyer Bradford Cohen said, Our route about getting a pardon was less conventional. We had supporters like Gucci Mane and Lil Yachty and... Vanilla Ice. Lil Yachty was listed along with the other guys I talked about on the official pardon, but Vanilla Ice was not. Carrick, felon, yes. Gucci Mane, felon, yes. Vanilla Ice, no. It's too embarrassing. Vanilla Ice's endorsement does not help. Not even good enough to appear on a citation for pardoning next to a fellow who served four years on eight felony charges, including tax fraud and lying to White House officials, and was also inches away from Rudy Giuliani slowly melting at a press conference outside a mulching company. Vanilla Ice, if you recall, did try to get arrested on conspiracy charges. He told Confederates to stop, collaborate, 
and listen. And that was cut on tape because single actually still not good enough to get the presidential shout out. And this was all after ICE, real name Robert Van Winkle, played the Mar-a-Lago New Year's party three weeks ago. Nary a shout out today. Will the indignities never stop? Yo, I don't know. I just know that ICE was given the cold shoulder out the door by Donald Trump. Word to your mother. On the show today, more crazy pardons. But first, while Vanilla and Lil didn't turn against the president, you know who did? Jeff and Tim and Jamie, who? Oh, the CEOs of America's biggest companies. Maybe for a time they coddled the president or straddled the line in condemning him. But by the end, the businessman president had been rejected by big business. So what's the consequence of Trump's poor standing with the business community? And how much credit should this group of elite corporate heads actually be given? Yale's Jeffrey Sonnenfeld talks to these CEOs and now talks to us about where they stand and what that might mean for corporations and political parties in the future. The events of January 6th and thereafter were shocking to all Americans, almost all Americans. Among them were some of the most powerful American CEOs of top companies. And they got together, at least a fairly representative group of the most powerful, and almost to a person said the president should be impeached. In fact, a Yale survey showed that 96% of the chief executives said, yes, he should be impeached. And they also, in an answer to a few questions, 85% of them said it was right for social network tech firms to block President Trump. Now, the man doing these surveys and talking to these executives, and from what I could glean, maybe being something of a CEO whisperer, is Jeffrey Sonnenfeld. He is the Senior Associate Dean for Leadership Studies at the Yale School of Management. Welcome to The Gist, Professor Sonnenfeld. Thank you, Mike. It's an honor to join you. Absolutely. So I want to ask you your role in a couple of ways. One is your sounding board for the CEOs. And when you assemble them virtually, what was on the agenda? What did you want to get out of them other than just their opinion on the events of the day? Terrific question. Uh, it's like a large classroom and business meeting combined. And, uh, but it's not a trade show or academic, God knows, not an, a, a tedious academic forum. It's not a World Economic Forum. In fact, we started this before the World Economic Forum, Forbes, Fortune, Business Week, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, or anybody was into this space as the first school for CEOs. But the spontaneity of what you're talking about is something different. We did three of them. The first one was, as you recall, election day. Then on uh, Thursday, November um, 5th, is when the president preempted the news shows. This is President Trump to um, announce false results that he had won and then presumptuously declared powers he didn't have, that many political scientists and historians classified that as a coup attempt, as a coup d'etat. So all the networks, with the exception, oddly, of CNN and and Fox, cut him mid-sentence as he was doing this spontaneously. They didn't coordinate it between. They didn't know it was going to happen. But that triggered quite a... um, sort of a tidal wave of CEOs either emailing me, texting me, or, or a few calling, uh, enough, so, enough so annoyed my family, uh, to say, can't we talk? So I tried to loop them together technologically to try to lash them together across media. It was getting to be hard. And I realized, why don't we just set up a time? So 
we wound up calling a bunch of CEOs. We, we invited 50 and 40 came. I mean, can you imagine on not even 12 hours notice, this was 7 p.m. Thursday night, the 5th, by Friday morning, the 6th at 7 a.m., including very prominent West Coast CEOs, media people and things. And we're talking, we're talking Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies. How big? Fortune 50 and Fortune 100. And they're there not because anybody declared them the, uh, you know, a fourth fourth pillar of government, but it's because they're pillars of of American trust. So they're not elected to anything. But the Edelman Trust Barometer, which you've probably seen, which is uh, mm-hmm. tens of thousands of people surveyed for this, or or every single day is morning consult uh, reviews, or. Uh, by uh, the uh, political scientist uh, Kyle Drope or um, or Mark Penn's uh, Harris reports keep showing us that the business leaders are the number one most trusted source uh, of authority and influence in the country today, more than, sadly, academics, sorry, more than people in the media and journalists, more than public officials, of course, even at the state level, but certainly at the national level, and even uh, more than the clergy. Reverend Andrew Young said at one of our recent summits, that has gotten to the, this point in his life where he looks to positive impact coming from social change through leaders in the business community more than from public officials and even the clergy these days. You know, as a, as a lifelong civil rights and and pioneer and clergy theologian, UN ambassador, congressman, and mayor, and things. Uh, so they rose to the occasion. And one political scientist then opened up our meeting, a guy named Tim Snyder, and said, "Well, this was a coup d'état attempt last night." And a bunch of the CEOs recoiled thinking that was overblown. But he said, what happens here is that we drift towards tyranny, is democracies are set up to be flexible. Democracies don't nail everything down for every possible situation that can happen by the written law. It's by trust and the system is flexible and responds to it. And if you get an unusual situation, you don't declare that it's an emergency and declare emergency powers to suspend the laws. He said, that's when it becomes tyranny. That's when you slip towards autocracy and things. CEOs heard that and they said, well, what do we do? They said, you have to respond immediately. You can't look and see how others respond. You need your, a voice of authority. The political scientist, Tim Snyder, said that. And the other historians, Rick Pildes, a constitutional law expert there and others. So the CEO said, great. They put together what they needed to do right then and there is to con- contact uh, legislators, largely Republican legislators. This is, again, November 6th. And then to be ready with a statement as soon as the Pennsylvania results were to be certified. And the best trade association statements we'll ever see in our lives were incredibly well-written and crisp, no platitudes, no corporate speak. It was five simple statements that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, National Association of Manufacturers, and especially the Business Roundtable this time came out with a very clear statement coming off of the exact phrasing we had the prior day, which is number one, that Biden and Harris were congratulated as the winners in a free and fair election. And frankly, these business leaders were very proud. They had a large role in making sure that these elections were especially secure because they had millions of employees out there on paid time off to work as volunteers. Second, that they said that um, these elections uh, were, in fact, uh, secure and fair and the largest in American history. And third, if the president had any, uh, President Trump had any grievances, he should take them to the proper legal appeals channel in the courts. And fourth, that if he did so, he should only go there if he has evidence of systematic fraud. And we see none, that these businesses actually said. And fifth and last, it should be a speedy transfer of power and transparent. Well, uh, that was incredible because as that statement came out, even before Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi could congratulate 
the winners on the next day, Saturday the 7th, this statement came out as, as soon as the networks declared it, which is, and then these trade associations, they all followed from that. And, but then so did President Bush 43, so did the Saudis, the Israelis, uh, all these heads of state wound up using basically the same storyboard, some of the same phrases, very influential. I wanted to ask about that, the influence. It didn't stop Trump. It didn't stop uh, his true believers, many of the lawyers who were losing case after case. So what was the actual effect? Or maybe we should look at it without the CEOs coming together, what might have been? That's so annoying. You have to bring up the reality because here the theory was that we would have had this wonderful morality play where these CEOs made the difference. Uh, and it would have been a tremendous uh, kind of uh, Jimmy Stewart, it's a wonderful life type thing or something. But instead of it being a, a simple Frank Capra film that uh, it took 62 court decisions later and the certification of all these Democrat and Republican uh, election officials and governors, and still the, the, the results are being refuted. So um, I didn't think we'd regroup. Two months later, I had to send out almost uh, apologetically a letter back to the CEOs. And this was again on about 10, 12 hours notice that to my amazement, there's a, a gathering storm of, of anxiety that we need to meet again. So we reconvened and again, 40 of them showed up. We met again, seven in the morning on the January 5th. And there was gross condemnation of the president's intervention in the efforts in the Georgia election with the, with the phone call having been recorded of his effort to tamper with the elections. He was condemned by 100% of them. We asked about impeachment, though, Mike, and this was the tricky thing. That week on the 5th, they said, no, don't impeach him. It's not worth it. I was amazed. After the riot, the seditious assault on the Capitol, it was 100%. They, they laid it at his feet 100% and said 100% that he should be impeached. That was on the 15th, which was a week ago, which was a week after the assault on the Capitol. But the day before the assault, they said, nah, don't worry about it. Let's just get him out of there. Let's move on. I've been doing these for 32 years and uh, uh, all around the world, thousands of CEOs. We never get 100% vote on anything. We never get unanimity ever. We had to recheck the, the, the data to make sure it was accurate. Is they 100% said we should defund these uh, seditious supporting congressional leaders. And you can see what's followed. These corporations have cut off funding. Some of them with this little bit less courageous both-siderism saying, we're not going to give money to anybody. But uh, an awful lot of them said, we're actually going to identify the seditious players and, and you know, fantastic firms that uh, from Marriott and, and Walmart and American Express and, you know, all of these pillars of American establishment said, we're, we are specifically not going to fund these people that are eroding um, the fabric of American society. So it is true that uh, corporate America in general on a number of issues lately, such as gay rights, has been quite progressive compared to maybe America as a whole. And historically, uh, in terms of immigration, corporate America has been more in favor of uh, looser or more liberal immigration policies than much of America. But it does also seem to me that there are two intertwined phenomena going on here. And one is Donald Trump doing all these unconscionable things, right? But the second is the fact that Donald Trump has no legitimate path to enact tax cuts or confirm judges. And my question is, would the rebuke over condition number one, Donald Trump's unconscionable actions, have happened without the reality of condition number two? They're not going to get or no one's going to get any business favorable policies from Donald Trump anymore. 
I can tell you this, that in our CEO programs, they probably, they don't just lean Republican, it's probably around 70% Republican. And yet in 2016, overwhelmingly, either with enthusiasm or reluctance, they supported Hillary Clinton and not Donald Trump. And similarly in 2020, overwhelmingly, either through enthusiasm or, or with reluctance, supported Joe Biden. Again, 70% plus Republican, but they did not support Trump. I did bring Trump to one of our summits years ago in, uh, at the Waldorf in New York. And many of these current CEOs who were then CEOs said, because they didn't see him as part of their, of their role in, in American life at all. They thought it's a, it's a mid-sized family business. Right. I mean, most of these are, most or all of these are probably publicly traded companies with responsibility to someone outside, you know, not sharing the last name of the CEO. Well, you just nailed that you're exactly right. That's the difference is that that's a family business, not accountable to anybody but himself. So they didn't see him as a peer. And he resented that feeling. He was always excluded from the club. Well, when he walked in, that top tier largely walked out. I reminded Trump of this in 2017 when I was meeting with him in Trump Tower uh, in just, just before the inauguration when he was still back in tower. And uh, he said, well, they're all coming by here now. I wonder why that is. Well, they did finally in, in January of 2017 give it a try. But then he, he's, he did his, his one-offs, his, his divide and conquer you know, that he used against Rubio versus Cruz and China versus Russia or Mexico versus uh, Canada or whatever. He, he always does these divide and conquers. He's doing Boeing versus Lockheed and trying Pfizer versus Merck and General Motors uh, versus Ford. They started to see through that and didn't want to be used that way. He was attacking uh, and saying, telling people not to buy Goodyear tires because they don't wear campaign paraphernalia at work. So they couldn't wear MAGA hats. And so, you know, it was just incredible. They realized he's not a champion of theirs. So these business leaders have long been suspicious and skeptical and not supportive of the Trump agenda. In fact, after they left in Charlottesville, Mike, they never really went back as a big group, uh, although he tried. This is the first time in American history the commander in chief had a call to action from the American business community, and they didn't respond. Even JFK, that had a, a difficult relationship with business for understandable reasons, uh, uh, he called them a bunch of SOBs. He had a better relationship with, with big business. The Business Roundtable, in fact, was founded by very progressive-minded CEOs that broke away from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the National Association of Manufacturers back 50 years ago. Irving Shapiro of DuPont and Reginald Jones of GE and others, Tom Watson of IBM, because they wanted to reset relationship with society. That They thought doing good is not antithetical to doing well, and they could be patriotic that nobody wants a divisive society. They don't want angry workers. They don't want finger-pointing communities. And harmony in society was a good thing for business and a good thing for the country. Were they too quiet uh, when there was a chance to act? For instance, during the election, if you said, where do labor groups line up? I would say, you know, with the Democrats and behind Biden, not just me. I think most people would say that. Where do immigrant groups line up? Where do, and if you go down the list, but then if someone were to say, and where do the CEOs line up? I don't think most people would say with Joe Biden. You can't name more than three major CEOs of Fortune 100 companies, Fortune 500 companies who supported Donald Trump. But were they vocal enough about it? Was it because I think most voters went into it saying, well, Trump's good on the economy. He's a businessman. He has business on his side. If these people are the embodiment of business, were they doing enough to get the message across? Business is not on your side. Now they are. Now they're in favor of impeachment. But then were they? They try not to be partisan as they are stewards of other people's resources. 
So unless there's something that really hits their company hard, they don't want to be out there on a campaign trail for either candidate on either side. I understand that. I'm a member of the media. I mean, that's an ideal for us too, but sometimes there's a time to choose, right? When it comes to Democrat versus Republican or $15 an hour wage or this or that, they'll they'll debate the issue on an issue by issue basis. But when it comes to um, treason versus patriotism, they don't see that as a partisan issue and they're willing to engage. So you say that the CEOs are 70% Republican. What about now? Do they still, I mean, you probably haven't polled them specifically on this, but do they still look at the Republican party as their party? What if it's a Trumpist party? Will they become Democrats? Uh, My guess is an awful lot of them will say they're independent now. Mm -hmm. Some pollsters, as you know, say that we're around 44% independent, maybe 25% identify as GOP these days. I don't know uh, how that'll come out with the business leaders. I think an awful lot of them will say they're independent. My last question is this. It's about your role in all of this. I was listening to uh, Scott Galloway on a podcast, and I know you know him. And he pointed to you as not just the person, not just Sally Quinn, the doyen of this group who's getting interesting people together, not George Gallup, who just wants to take their temperature, but nudging them along. And so I was wondering to what extent did you do that? And maybe to what extent are you like a one-man collective action solution? Is it the case that many of these CEOs don't want to be the first to jump, but that's where their instincts are. And what they really just need is someone to bring them together to make them realize that they're appalled and that their heightened emotions are not unusual within this group. In pulling these CEOs together, many of them have their hearts in the right place, but there are severe reprisals for speaking out, either backlash from their customers or politicians. What happens in getting them together, they get affirmation from one another. They can take chances. They can walk out there and reinforce each other. So that's very important. And I do push them pretty hard. And if they speak, we're going to surface what they said before. And I often will have clips of things that are inconsistent with what they just said that will throw up against them. Uh, They reinforce each other to take these positions. And it is through collective action that we really have a forceful impact that way. But single individuals make a difference. Like Ken Fraser of Merck, taking the position he did as, you know, say, one of four black CEOs of a Fortune 500 firm. It was really courageous of him to speak out in outrage post-Charlottesville. Mary Barra of General Motors, uh, Doug McMillan of Walmart. These are people that are uh, quite powerful leaders. Bob Iger, of the, uh, now Bob Chapek, a successor of Disney, have taken really strong positions. Arnie, Arnie uh, Sorensen of Marriott. Uh, they have been courageous as individuals, but collectively, they can do even more when they join forces together. Jeffrey Sonnenfeld is Senior Associate Dean for Leadership Studies at the Yale School of Management. Thanks so much, Jeffrey. Oh, it's been a delight. You know, all that's necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. And these people felt they had to speak out. Donald Trump issued a spate of pardons on his way out the door, a spate being the collective term for multiple pardons, murder of crows, parliament of owls, spate of pardons. At this rate, the spate won't abate because more information is emerging about those pardoned. And while Steve Bannon and Lil Wayne are notorious gangsters each, or at least live that lifestyle, and so talking about their misdeeds won't need much explication, perhaps I can offer some on some of the other figures who were pardoned or granted clemency by the outgoing president. There was the Denver son of a powerful Washington lobbyist who once ran the fantasy sports combine. 
He was jailed for insider trading. Drew Bo Brownstein doesn't need the nickname Bo. His name Drew is already a nickname. And as we said, he was the son of a lobbyist so powerful, he was once nicknamed the 101st senator. Trump, having consigned David Perdue and Kelly Leffler to that role, eh, perhaps he needed to make amends. Trump also was at liberty to give liberty to Maine real estate developer Michael Liberty. Liberty made illegal campaign donations attempting to exceed federal limits. The Bangor News reports, quote, over a two-week period in May 2011, Liberty concealed the size of the contribution by splitting it into nine parts and making them in the names of employees, associates, and family. Yeah, crime of the century. Let's see. Uh, this one's from Johnny Liberty. This one's from uh, Libby Liberty. This one will be from, uh, let's say, Lucy Liberty, Liberty McGee, uh, Donna Democracy, Georgie Justice for All. Sorry, for some reason, everyone from Maine sounds like a member of the Dead End Gang. The donations actually were to Mitt Romney. So you're saying, what? Trump helping someone who helped Mitt Romney? Don't worry. Liberty, Liberty also donated to Donald Trump. And there's this connection. He actually didn't sound like I portrayed him. A Maine magazine once called Liberty, quote, Donald Trump with a Maine accent. So it was more like, you're fired. You can't get there from here, except maybe with a loan from Deutsche Bank. Trump pardoned one of the fathers in the college bribery scandal. He pardoned an Israeli colonel who recruited Jonathan Pollard to spy for Israel. He pardoned the former Google engineer who stole trade secrets and went to work for Uber. In each of those cases, a Trump donor was the advocate for the pardoned individual. Tom Barrack for the USC briber, the late Sheldon and Miriam Adelson for the Israeli spy, tech billionaire Peter Thiel, in the case of the engineer convicted of industrial spying. In many cases, the pardon or receiver of clemency had a connection to the Trump family. Judge Jeanine Pirro successfully lobbied him to pardon her ex-husband. You know what? If the ex-wife, who is a judge, won't judge the guy, who are we to judge? You know, other than citizens. Jared Kushner's friend, Ken Curson, arrested for cyber-stalking, got pardoned, Curson, by the way, also ran the Rudy Giuliani 2008 presidential campaign. Fun fact, Curson is the only contributor to This American Life ever to get a presidential pardon because, of course, Sarah Val was denied one by Obama. Then there was the Manhattan art dealer Hillel Nahmad, who ran an illegal gambling ring. He was pardoned. So what's the connection? Is the connection to Trump a shady, high-ranking Russian gangster who had a role in the ring but avoided arrest? Or that Nakhmad bought apartments, in fact, bought an entire floor in Trump Tower? Let me read to you some reporting from the time. With his sixth purchase at 721 Fifth Avenue, Trump Tower, we believe Mr. Nakhmad may finally have the full set that is the entire 51st floor the Trump Tower patron paid $8 million for apartment 151AB, City Records Show. And while Mr. Nakhmad has taken his time with his purchases in the past, the most recent buy followed right on the heels of 51C, which sold for $2.8 million in November. He spent the last decade buying up 51D, J, K, and H, which, though a few letters of the alphabet are absent, appears to be the entirety of lines available on the floor. 
The reporting that I just read was in the newspaper, The New York Observer. And you want to hear something weird? The editor of The New York Observer at the time of the article about Trump pardonee Hillel Nakhmad was Trump pardonee Ken Carson. It is a small and quite sordid world. A world politico described this way. Headline, Trump's crony pardons flabbergast the political world. What tender assortment of knaves are these to be flabbergasted by Trump and his cronies? Flabbergasted by the pardoning of cronies. Why does one even have cronies but to engage in underhanded dealings with them? Trump engaged in underhanded dealings with charities and wounded veterans and his own mother. He's not going to get up to some chicanery with his cronies? Come on, Politico. Have you learned nothing? I'll tell you what the real flabbergasting is. It's that you were flabbergasted. Or is Trump flabbergast lit you? Politico. More like Politico or Politicon. Those were terrible puns, but they were, of course, about a terrible man. And for them and him, I beg your pardon. And that's it for today's show. Shayna Roth produces the gist. She's been known to rock the mic like a vandal, light up a stage, and wax a chump like a candle. Though candles don't really wax their enemy, they're more made of wax. It's akin to their life force, the loss of which harkens their demise. Margaret Kelly, just producer, sometimes something grabs a hold of her tightly, flow like a harpoon daily and nightly. But do harpoons really flow? Ah, they thrust or spear a whale or other nautical prey. Flow. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And while she is no stranger to the exhortation to dance, rush the speaker that booms, she worries that the warning, I'm killing your brain like a poisonous mushroom, may be overstating the fatality risk posed by most fungi, at least mycologically speaking. The gist. I noticed that Donald Trump pardoned a guy named Lou Hobbs. What are the chances Trump saw the name and said, sure, Lou Dobbs, love the guy. Who'd he murder? Doesn't matter. He's free, and so is Maria Blardafomo. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening.